Hello, I'm Rick Millenthal from the Shipyard, and welcome to Voices of Resilience. In this series, we have top thought leaders in mental health who share their personal stories that have fueled their passion to help others navigate stress, trauma, and adversity, especially in these challenging times. I'm happy to have here today, Dr. Ken Yeager, director of the STAR program of the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Health at the Ohio State University. Ken, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. I think we should start with you describing the STAR program. You're co-founder of it, and it's pretty interesting. Yes. We started thinking about trauma and trauma and mental health. There was a study called the ACE study, Adverse Childhood Experiences, that was indicating that trauma was really key in the development of illnesses. And we were hot on the path of a grant that suggested we could identify when physical trauma turns into psychological trauma. And while doing the gap analysis, um, I was wandering around the medical center talking to different people and just happened one day to be in the back of the emergency department when three level one traumas landed. And I was walking with the trauma surgeon and a emergency physician, both really top shelf guys. And I was asking them, you know, you guys do an amazing job of putting the bodies back together, but who, who puts their minds back together? And they thought for a minute and said, you know, nobody. And just for a moment, the ED physician, emergency room physician, looked away. And when he looked back, I caught a tear going down his cheek. And he stood there for just a second and said, you know, what about us? Who puts us back together? And about then, a, a young woman patient came by on a gurney into the trauma bay. And he said, you know, I'm going to have to go tell that girl's parents that either she's not coming home or if she does, she'll never be the same. And that's what 11 years ago caused us to hit the brakes and say, you know what, we need to start looking at our care providers as well as those in the community that we serve. So that was really the turning point for the STAR program. What does STAR stand for? Stress, trauma, and adversity, because our program helps people to acknowledge that these are the challenges they face. These are the places they get stuck. These are the uh, issues that have held them back. And if we can kind of work with them and reframe the way they think about these, we can lead them to um, have happier, more fulfilled lives. And then the R? Resilience. Hmm. That's what we're shooting for. That's where you're leading them. It takes time to get to that resilience, but you know, we have found that it's in there. It's in there with everyone. And it takes a little time for them to coax out of their thought processes that they, in fact, can be resilient and they can make a tremendous difference in their lives and, in fact, the lives of others subsequently. Your story began with what we now know and call the front line our caregivers which of course right now during this pandemic mm -hmm. i think all of us are using that term mm -hmm. is there more stress for them today i would imagine there is absolutely there is our frontline medical intensive care unit staff 
are dealing with tremendously complex cases that progress rapidly and um, require an incredible amount of complexity in managing ventilators and medications and all of the processes that go along with that at the very same time that our care providers are struggling reusing their N95 masks and using the masks until they're soiled and not having the appropriate PPE or enough of it. And they're, they're really afraid. They're afraid of becoming ill. They're deathly afraid of bringing this home to the family. Many of them choose not to go home to their families or they're sleeping in one floor of the house while their family's sleeping in another floor just to provide protection all the while dealing with the care of others. So it's not just a struggle for them, it's a struggle for their families. Absolutely, which I think has always been true in healthcare. I, I grew up with a friend whose father was a physician and you know they had a very strained relationship. And as we became adults and I asked him later, I said, you know, whatever happened between you and your dad? And he just looked at me and smiled and said, you know, my father was a great physician. Hmm. He figured that told it all, huh? Yep. You came to this field through your own personal story, didn't you, Ken? Yes, I did. Do you mind sharing that a little? Sure. Um, you know, I hear a lot of people talk about how they ended up where I ended up. And there's always this uh, precursor of, well, I grew up in a home that was this or that was that. You know, I really don't have any of that precursor story. Um, I grew up in a home that we didn't have a lot, but we didn't want for anything. Both of my parents were in the home. My father worked every day. My mother was a stay-at-home mother. We didn't ever really want for anything. What I did have was a stacked genetic deck that I didn't understand. Um, my mother's father had fought in World War One. And when he came back, he depended upon alcohol to cope with what we now call post-traumatic stress disorder. And he actually died in the state mental hospital. My father's father apparently drank quite a bit. Both of them died before I was born, so I don't have any firsthand knowledge of this. Um, I had several uncles who had problems with alcohol. I'm not going to call them alcoholic. They never called themselves alcoholic. So my life experience was um, I wasn't a great student. They liked me well enough in the third grade. They'd asked me to stay again. I really did experience anxiety about school and about testing and about grades. And really nobody was able to tell me what that was and nobody ever looked at what it was, and at about age 12, um, I met some individuals who were much older than me, and that was the standard in my life because as a very young child, my father put musical instruments in my hand. So by age 12, I was fairly proficient on bluegrass instruments, banjos, mandolins, guitars, hmm. and um, I was with these two guys. They were older, college age. And um, one of them said, hey, would you like to do something? It'll make you giggle and laugh all night long. And it sounded like a pretty good idea to me, so I did. 
And um, unbeknownst to me, I had just done my first hit of LSD Hmm. and really liked it. (laughs) And it was at a point that I realized much, much later, I liked it because I wasn't anxious, which led me then to finding and experimenting with alcohol and cannabis and cocaine and amphetamines. is pretty amazing at the point where I started to use drugs, my grades got better, remarkably better, because I wasn't so anxious anymore. I was probably, if I were to look back at it now, clinically intoxicated most of my high school days, or many of my high school days. Mm -hmm. And that became the coping tool for me, up until the point where it began to work against me. My tolerance was high. I didn't have a good job. I didn't have much money. And it led to all of the problems accumulating that happens when a person has an alcohol and a drug problem. And at one point, I was absolutely knew I had an alcohol and drug problem. And at that one point, I had driven to my parents' house to borrow money from my mother, which frequently addicted individuals do. And as I was standing there talking with her after she'd given, I don't know, 10 or $20, she said, you know, I think I've got to go. And I'm standing maybe three to five feet from her. And I thought that was odd because where would she go? My mother didn't drive. And at that moment, she had a massive heart attack and died. Mm. And I knew in the aftermath of dealing with all that, that I was an alcoholic. I knew I was addicted, but yet it took another year and a half for me to get to treatment just because knowing it doesn't mean you're willing to change it or able to change it. So I went to treatment for about 30 days. I thought I was going for three. They kept me for 30. Mm -hmm. Um, My room was on the corner of the psychiatric unit and the addiction unit because they really weren't sure what my issues were. And it turns out they were both anxiety, depression, and addiction, mostly anxiety. And you know what? That was 37 years ago and not by any good design on my part. I think probably more luck is that I have been blessed to not use any alcohol or drugs since that time zero relapses. And, you know, I, I probably the greatest gift out of that has been my relationship with my wife, my relationship with my kids, because my children never knew me as an intoxicated person. And then the other gift that follows close behind that is the opportunity to go back to school, to finish my education, to earn my doctoral work, and then to have an opportunity to give back and to give back through treating people. And I was thinking about this the other night. Um, I've been doing this for about 34 years now. That's a long time to do this kind of work. But I can't imagine myself doing anything else. Well, I see your energy, Ken, and uh, I think you're just getting started. (laughs) well thank you for the optimism i'm not so sure some days were there people there to help you you mentioned your wife did she did she know you then or after 
Yes. In fact, my wife and I met probably years before, and she tells me, and I vaguely remember meeting her, that she said that day, I wonder what it'd be like to, to marry a guy like that. <laughs> and my recollection is arguably foggy about that. Um, we reconnected several years later, and she had just joined a housing site. So that summer, 12 families built 12 houses. It was called self-help housing. And that was basically the, our dating was building a house. I've had wonderful support from my wife, her family, my family. Everyone's been supportive. Everybody knew that this change needed to happen. I did attend AA meetings consistently in the early years, and I don't know that I would have been successful had I not. And I also worked on the mental health issues because, as I've come to understand now, that if you don't address both, it's a setup to fail. And mm -hmm. um, I was fortunate to be able to have jobs, and the job supported the schooling. There was a psychologist that I worked with early on, and I was a tech and carrying urine specimens and early, early in my career. And she discovered that uh, the patients were talking to me overnight. And she called me into her office and started the conversation with, I understand the patients are talking with you during the night. And I said, yes. And she said, well, Ken, we can't have that happening. And I said, oh, okay, I understand. I'll, I'll get my things and I'll go. And she said, well, well wait a minute. Let me finish my sentence. We can't have that happening without you getting your degrees. So we want to help you go back to school. And, um, you know, 34 years later, I think she was right. I think she nailed it. Isn't it amazing the turning points and moments in people's lives? And usually those turning points happen because of certain people in our lives. Mm -hmm. Almost always, isn't it? It almost always is. Yeah. And I think one of the great gifts and the work that I do that I love so much is I get to see people make those connections. Mm -hmm. And I don't, I don't ever want to think that I'm the connection. Um, my mentor years ago told me, if you're going to take credit for the successes, then you're going to have to take credit for the failures too. And I just think that we, we give them a roadmap. We, give them the skill sets, we give them the tools. And then we sit back and we watch. And many of them, many, many of my patients over the years have just amazed me with what they've been able to do. So they inspire you? All the time. There has never been a time in my career that I think I've learned more from reading books or articles or lectures. I don't think I've learned nearly as much from any of that formal training as I've learned from watching my patients. And they have a wonderful, gentle way of showing us what they need and giving us permission to help guide them to find what they need. Um, the more I think about it, the more I think about, you know, there really aren't any coincidences. These are all little miracles along the way. And they, they come to us for a reason. And if, we're sharp enough to understand what these things mean, we can really actually go for them and we can accomplish many, many things. 
probably all of those factors were innate to begin with, but it takes somebody supporting you and somebody recommending that you give that a try to maybe gives permission to, to take that risk or maybe gives one permission to um, not be quite so hard on themselves or gives them permission to understand that maybe, maybe I can do this. That permission. A lot of that is helped by us talking about our emotions and talking about mental health in general. And that's been somewhat stigmatized in the past, hasn't it? Well, I think it is still stigmatized. Yeah. I don't know where we are going to go after this pandemic, but if what comes out of it is acknowledging that mental health is part of all health and that there's no such thing as good physical health without good mental health, then that would be the silver lining of this terrible, terrible illness. Yeah. My, my parents, I vividly recall them talking in hushed voices about cancer. Yeah, that's right. Because cancer was a death sentence, right? And they also talked in hushed voices about mental disorders back in the 70s, manic depression. And I understand that given their experiences. But, you know, I think if they were around today, they would be very open about cancer. They would probably also be very open about AIDS and HIV. But I think they'd still talk about mental illness and hushed voices. Yeah, that's the parallel I talk about a lot. I remember that as well. Mm -hmm. uh, you would whisper cancer. Um, you certainly would whisper breast cancer for the silly reason that it had to do with women's breasts. And uh, you would whisper AIDS yeah. because of the connotations it had to uh, sexual promiscuity um, mm -hmm. when it was spread many ways. And so we, we spent a long time not fighting those diseases. And then when we did, look at what humanity did, you know? Right. It's exponential. And, and the question is, how much more suffering do we need to experience for people to understand this is an illness of the brain? And we don't really understand the brain, but we are beginning to understand processes that help people change. And I think as we move forward, the single most important thing is to acknowledge this is here, that it's biological, that it's not self-inflicted, and that people don't need to just pull themselves up by their bootstraps. Um, you know, in fact, this is something that people need medical help with. They need medication. They need therapy. They need insight. They need to be given permission to examine what it is, whatever it is in their lives. Be it bipolar disorder, anxiety, depression. You know, the the single most expensive disease worldwide is depression. And I think, if nothing else, if the economists just look at the billions of dollars that would be saved by treating depression, we would be light years ahead. And, and we certainly know in taking care of our healthcare providers over the last 11 years, that they have more energy to give to their patients. They have more energy themselves to take care of themselves. And that translates to the people they take care of. And it 
results in a million simple acts of kindness that are really what is the art of healthcare. Hmm. That's well said. You know, this issue about us being able to talk about it's what motivated me to dedicate passion mental health. You know, I'm, as you know, I'm not a medical professional like you can, mm-hmm. or most of the folks we've been talking to on this uh, series. I, I lead a, a marketing agency called The Shipyard, and I spend my time counseling businesses on how to communicate and how to persuade, how to grow their business that way. But we realized, you know, that meant we were in the communications business, we we're in the persuasion business, uh, we're in the words business, and words matter a lot in mental health. You can inspire with words. Mm-hmm. And uh, and that's when we thought maybe we could become a part of, of, of changing this, this conversation. And it does seem to me, uh, not as a result of us, we're a small drop in the ocean, but it does seem to me that, uh, that the conversation is changing. Yes. And perhaps we're even at, embarking on a tipping point when it comes to mental health. Well, you, you may be a drop in the ocean, but you know, if there are enough of those drops in the oceans, we can create a tidal wave. Right. And, you know, it doesn't matter if you're the first drop, the 50th dropped or the last drop. We, we really do need to pull together and communication I think is key to all of this and, acknowledgement that, you know, these are, these are real challenges. These are some of the most difficult challenges any of us have. And you mentioned that this pandemic, and of course, the way we're linked together could be part of that tidal wave, part of that tipping point. Mm-hmm. I think those who watch the evening news or the nightly news, or they're seeing healthcare professionals coming out and openly saying, I'm afraid. I'm anxious. Mm-hmm. I don't have any energy. I, I just feel helpless. There was a physician whose both parents were on ventilators. And, you know, I think the worst thing for a healthcare physician is at the moment that they realize that all of the training, all of the time, all of the skills, all of the expertise is not going to change the outcome for that patient. I think that's that's the hardest thing any physician does. Yeah. And we're seeing that. We're seeing our healthcare providers and they're doing every single thing they can and in the end they realize that it's it's inadequate for this illness. We don't have a cure. We don't have a vaccination. I think that's as hard for society to reap to literally wrap their head around. Right. They've been so used to antibiotics and vaccinations and, you know, arguing whether they work or they don't work or whether they cause this or they cause that, that has become commonplace. And when you think about statistics, the further you are away from something, the more confident you feel. But statistically, the further you are away from something happening, the closer you are to the next expression of whatever that is. Right. And so what, 19 teens was the Spanish flu. And here we are in the 2020s. We'd forgotten 
we'd forgotten that there are illnesses that uh, come on like this that are really rapidly spread, and we can't fix it. Well, and the immediate communication, of course, is accelerating all this. I read a lot about the early 1900s, and uh, of course, it was a massive, massive epidemic, but it wasn't always on for people. You know, it affected them when it affected them. Right. When they intersected with the disease, either themselves or family or loved ones. Now it's with us every hour. And so part of that, I'm sure, I know it does for me, part of that gives us a lot of uh, stress and anxiety. Um, but part of that links us all together on this planet. You know, we're, we're at a time when there is a lot of discourse that divides us and there's a chance the pandemic could divide us more, but it, I, I feel like it's actually going to do the opposite. I think it's going to unite us and we're going to realize wherever you live, however you live, uh, when it comes to this virus, uh, we're all human and linked together. I certainly hope so. You know, I think when we get back to the stigma of mental health, that's one potential change that could really make an amazing difference is that you had mentioned in the Spanish flu that it wasn't on all the time and people really didn't understand what it was until it happened to them. And I don't know if that's similar or different these days because people tend to believe that these things aren't going to hit them. We all have our defense mechanisms that lead us to believe we're safe but now we're seeing large numbers of this occurring. Yeah. And, um, you know, I think that there could very well be an understanding of we are more alike than we are different. And we are more vulnerable than we ever believed. And, you know, when we talk about mental illness, they say this mental illness occurs in one in four individuals. Not so much. I think mental illness occurs in one-on-one. -on -one. <laughs> I totally agree. Yeah. If your family member has it, you're impacted by it. If you have it, you're impacted by it. If your neighbor has it, you can be impacted by it. This is really one-in-one. -one. You talked earlier about addiction, and you even mentioned being on the, uh, the corner room between the addiction and mental health uh, sections of the hospital and it led you really to build a philosophy of addiction and mental health being tied together. Can you tell me a little more about that? Sure. We know as we're beginning to map the genome, we, we know that what's in your RNA and your DNA, they interact. We now understand that depression and heart disease are coded on the same allele. Mm-hmm. And that basically a third of the people, 33%, who have heart disease will be depressed. Hmm. The other way is true, too. With depression, are likely more likely to have heart disease. Mm -hmm. I think that's true of addiction, and I think that's true of mental illness. And the reason that we have not been able to sort this out is that there are multiple sites that house factors of depression, of mental illness, of anxiety, of addiction. So it's not like we can go in and knock out a gene or we can map the, the RNA, DNA, and we can, you know, somehow make this go away. It's, it's like cancer. 
There are many types of it. There are many expressions of it. And it is literally hardwired in a body in a way that it makes it nearly impossible to figure out how to make it not happen. Mm-hmm. What we are getting better at is understanding what gives people the ability to deal with it, to cope with it, to treat it. And we're still woefully inadequate. And the reason I say that is in the United States, every 13 minutes, somebody ends their life. If that's not an epidemic, I don't know what is. And we find from the research that it's often linked with depression or anxiety or life circumstances. People who are intoxicated are at greater risk. We still have a long way to go, but we are making progress. And I think the more we talk about it, the more we understand it, the more we deal with it, the more the science is funded to be able to look at it, the better off we will be. So you feel that there is hope. We're in a place where we can reduce addiction and we can fight suicide in this country. I do believe that. But I think we have to acknowledge it first. The reason that we have been able to fight cancer is the New York Times two-page ad that tobacco is a predictor of cancer. We acknowledge that. The difference in the way that we've approached HIV in the world is in the 80s, acknowledging that this was a physical illness. Without that acknowledgement, there is not funding. So the National Institute of Health is less likely to fund mental health treatment research than it is cancer research because cancer research is understood as a disease state. The same is true with HIV. The same is true with SARS and H1N1 and the novel coronavirus. But yet, until we acknowledge mental illness and addiction as disease processes, we will not be able to combat it effectively. Yeah. Hey, so you talked earlier, and of course it's in the name of STAR about resilience. Mm -hmm. And I've heard you talk about resilience reserves. Did I say that right? Your reserves of resilience. Mm -hmm. What do you mean by that? Well, I think we all have and we all compete for energy, and we can save up that energy or we can squander the energy, and we can direct the energy in the right way, and we can direct it in not so good ways. But the realization that we, we all compete for energy, and if you look for resilience every single day, you find resilience. Um, mm-hmm. Because the opposite is we're all hardwired um, to see the negative because that, that'll kill us. Mm-hmm. So it's Darwinian fitness, if you will, right. or the fight or flight response. And while it helps our species to survive, it does nothing to make us happy. Mm-hmm. Resilience is all around us. We're just not trained or keyed in to look at it. But every morning the sun comes up and 
it's the springtime and I'm looking out my window at the, the plants around my house coming up. And, um, you know, it, a couple of winters ago, it was, it was January 17th. It had been 29 degrees the night before. And on this brick retaining wall behind my house, there's a little flower, a little yellow flower blooming. And all of the plant around it is in decay. But nobody told that plant it couldn't bloom. That plant was resilient. <laughs> and I think if you key in on the resilience that's around you every day, that helps build your energy and that gives you the reserves then to help other people moving forward. And there is really interesting neuroscience information coming forward. Um, Taya Singer is a brilliant neuroscientist at the Max Planck Institute in Germany. And she writes some of the most amazing studies. And in one, she um, had 16 Tibetan monks come to her lab at the Max Planck Institute. And she asked them, because they can go to a, a, a emotional state at will to go to a state of empathy and then to get in her functional MRI. And she was imaging the brain and thinking about human interaction. And when the monks one by one went through the fMRI, their, um, all of the pain receptors in their brain lit up. And Singer thought maybe it's sympathy that, that gives us a boost. And one by one, the, the monks went through the fMRI experiencing sympathy. And again, all the pain receptors in the brain lit up. And the monks asked Singer, please, please allow us to feel compassion. And as the monks went back through the fMRI, one by one, the reward centers of the brain began to light up. So specifically, the dopamine cascade reward system lit up. Mm -hmm. And the monks explained when Singer said what happened is that empathy is to understand the person's pain. Sympathy is to feel as if you have their pain or share their pain. And you don't get to compassion until you engage in a simple act of kindness. Mm -hmm. So in reality, we all have our hands on the spigot of whether or not we're happy. Mm -hmm. But the key to being happy is to using your energy wisely and to share that energy with people who share energy back with you. That's an amazing concept. Share our energy back with you. Mm -hmm. Do you think this pandemic has lessened, has reduced almost on a worldwide basis our reserves, our energy right now? I think the pandemic has exhausted us. But I also think at the same time, and, and if you look closely at the news, people are giving back because innately, maybe not of conceptually, innately they understand that giving back is how you feel better in difficult times like this. And I hope that that's the lesson learned, is that we can find positive energy out of horribly difficult circumstances. You know, just the last few minutes has been an epiphany for me in which you're saying that the human condition is resilience. Mm -hmm. I mean, simply put, we are tired 
and we go to sleep to be resilient the next morning. You talked about getting up the next morning, but I thought about our entire being is about exhausting energy, mm-hmm. exhausting our reserves, and then sleeping, and then waking up again each morning. And things happening each day that uh, emotionally can drain us. Right. And getting up each morning. And then when you look at the history of the planet, the history of humanity, of course, that's been the case over and over and over again. We're a, we're a pretty resilient species. And uh, I, I think that's a good point. And you think you are already seeing their glimmers because we're deep in the middle of this, but you're already seeing glimmers of resilience and giving back and kindness today. I am. And I think historically we've seen this. Um, During times of conflict, during times of adversities, weather issues, events, illness, pandemics, global conflict. But as a species, humans, they, they need one another. As a species, we are better when we work together, then we work separately. We rely on one another. Yes. And I think that's the best part of us. Dr. Kenneth Yeager, you are, you're amazing. I am uh, so happy and so pleased to have this conversation with you. And I I just want to thank you. And I, I want to thank you for today. And I want to thank you for your leadership. And I want to thank you for helping us all navigate these challenges that really, as you said, all of us have in our lives. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for being there and getting this done and helping to get the world out. It's an honor and pleasure to be able to work with you. Ken is a professor clinical in the College of Medicine, Department of Psychiatry of The Ohio State University and director of the STAR program. To learn more about the exciting work underway at the STAR program and at the department, you can call 614-293-STAR or 614-293-7827. If you're in need of urgent mental health services, please contact NetCare Access at 614 276-2273 or go to your nearest emergency room.